Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. My name is Delena, and our teaching text this morning is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Delana. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, that your word reveals the truth to us about who you are and who you say we are. And so we just pray, come Holy Spirit, Would you take this prophecy that we're gonna unpack this morning and allow us to, yes, understand it with our minds, but we pray, God, more than that, would you move this truth into our hearts? Would it be a living truth that we carry into the rest of our days, that we would embody God as your people? Reveal more of who you say you are to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. You can grab a seat. I'm so happy to be with you all today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Shelby. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We've got people that would love to bring you one. We're gonna be in Isaiah, the text that Delana just read, Isaiah chapter nine. And if you weren't here uh, last week, let me just reorient you to where we are this year at AJC as we lean into this Advent season. We wanna see God do stuff. Anyone wanna see God do stuff? Yeah. We wanna see God expand the boundaries of our wonder. We don't want our wonder this time of year to just be captivated by good cookies, which I love good cookies, or pretty lights, or fun holiday things, although those things are wonderful and they help us celebrate and savor the season, we believe that there is a greater wonder that he wants to tune us into that actually we can carry with us throughout the entirety of this season. And so in our teaching series, it's all about unpacking the rule and the reign of Jesus that was inaugurated in Jesus's first advent and will be established fully in his second advent. 
Our hope is that as we marvel together at the subversive way of Jesus' reign, we will start to see with fresh eyes of faith how the nativity is so much more than a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. It is so much more than that. It is that. It really happened, which is incredible. But it's more than that. It's this invitation to us that is awaiting our response awaiting your response. Last week, Tim unpacked the cosmic battle taking place behind the scenes of this baby in a manger moment. We got to see together the reality that there are unseen forces of both darkness and light that cause this cosmic clash of kingdoms. Picking up on the image of the dragon that represents Satan and all his schemes in the book of Revelation, some describe this clash of kingdoms as a battle between the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. And this morning, we're gonna look at how this cosmic battle spills into the earthly realm and calls us to respond in one of two ways. You ready, you tracking with me? It's okay if you're like, I don't know everything she's talking about. Hopefully, we get some clarity as we go, yes? One of my favorite Christmas carols is Oh Holy Night. Weird thing about me, uh, my friends know that I have this tendency to be drawn to really sad movies. Like, I don't know why. I'm in therapy, so I'm sure I'll figure it out along the way. But one of my favorites is Steel Magnolias, for example. Any Steel Magnolia fans? It is so good, but it's heartbreaking. And there's something maybe about this song, Oh Holy Night, uh, that, that draws me to it for this particular reason, because it it kind of brings you into the guts of life. The guts of life, there's this line that gets me every time in O Holy Night. It says, long lay the world in sin and error, pining, pining. It's a picture of the broken, dark, sinful condition of the world that gives way to pining. Pining's not a word that we use a lot in our day, but to pine is to deeply long for something or someone. It's a picture of a broken-hearted lover yearning, desperate for something that's just out of reach. And in Isaiah's prophetic word of hope, he starts to fill in this picture for us of what exactly the world is pining for, or more accurately, who the world is pining for. The first chapter of the book of Isaiah, it opens up with him confronting and calling out the corruption of Jerusalem and Judah's faithless leaders. They had become murderers, like the people leading these nations, God's people, they had become murderers and thieves, oppressing the poor and living in total rebellion against God. It's bad news, like bad stuff is happening. And so Isaiah is warning them. He's writing to them to warn these rulers and those that were following in their footsteps of the darkness that is sure to settle in on them if they don't turn from their sin and follow him. Isaiah is trying to help them see that their rebellion against God would come at a cost. And that cost, if they refuse to turn away from their wicked ways and, and move toward trusting and obeying God, that cost would end in exile, where their nations would be conquered and decimated by the great enemy empires of Assyria and Babylon. But the people, they choose not to repent. 
And as a result, Isaiah's warning turns into the people's reality. The nation of Israel gets attacked by Babylon and thousands of Israelites are slaughtered at the hand of this evil empire. And those who survived the attack were then exiled from their homes, forced to serve the Babylonian empire in a foreign land. Imagine, like imagine having to live with and serve the people who killed most of your family and destroyed your hometown. Imagine that. It's actually a reality that we're seeing unravel on news headlines and TV screens right now. We might not know exactly what that feels like, but there are a group of people in the world right now who do. This is the darkness that Isaiah is referring to. This is the darkness they're walking in, the land of deep darkness they're living in, as he says. And at the helm of that darkness is an evil ruler, the chaos dragon personified in this king these kings, these rulers, inflicting pain of every kind on the people. This is life in exile. And so what are the people pining for? It's not hard to guess. I'm sure there were lots of things they were pining for, but at the top of that list, these people are pining for peace. They're pining for peace. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the story of Israel's exile to Babylon isn't just about a historical event. Watch this. The biblical writers, they take this theme of exiles and and the authors use this idea of exile as an image of something that is so much more universal. Exile, it's that feeling of alienation and yearning for something more no matter where you live. You know what I'm talking about? It reflects this universal human experience of being out of place or longing for a sense of belonging. And so in the Bible, exile represents the human condition. The human condition, this propensity that we have to repeat the pattern of corruption where we choose to trust in our own way over God's, which then leads us to a Babylon that we can't escape. The darkness that you and I experience today, like I said, it might not look like exile or captivity ensued by a foreign ruler, though for some, like I mentioned, it does, but we do know what exile feels like. It's the disorienting darkness of the one who experiences discrimination, economic disparities, the sudden or slow loss of a loved one, betrayal, infidelity, abuse, gossip. And so we too, like those Israelites wandering in exile, we too are a people pining for peace. And I think it's important this Advent season that we let ourselves feel that. Sometimes I think we miss the beauty of the inbreaking light of God's kingdom because we anesthetize ourselves from feeling the darkness. We don't wanna feel it. I don't wanna feel it. And so we cope and all of that coping only distances us from the hope and the peace that this prophet Isaiah is promising to his people, to us today. And for anyone who's ever lived in the aftermath of war, you know that peace has to mean a whole lot more than the mere absence of conflict or pain, right? It has to. 
That, that absence of conflict or pain, that's just part of it. Do, do you want war to stop? Do you want exile to end? Yeah, of course. But, but then what about the wreckage that you're left with? What about the wreckage you're, le- you're left with? Peace, it has to mean more than just the absence of something. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And to bring shalom literally means to complete, to make whole, to restore. When rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean that they stop fighting. It means that they also start working together for the benefit of one another. So biblical peace, biblical peace is about seeing the broken pieces of our lives and relationships restored, made whole, complete. So when we think about this peace that the people are longing for as they live in exile, it's a peace that includes, yes, the absence of what is causing the conflict, but more than that, the presence of something better in its place. Yeah, you catching, you, you, you're with me? Just give me a yes, you're in this, okay, great, good. This state of shalom, this peace that is both the absence of conflict and the thing that is pointing to something better in its place, this shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate. That's what they were supposed to bring about for the nations, but they never could. And so the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to this future king, this prince of shalom whose rule and reign would bring shalom with no end. It'd be a time when God would make a new covenant of shalom with his people, making a way to right all of the wrongs and heal all that's been broken. You see, beyond the exile and destruction, God is showing Isaiah a light breaking in on the other side of darkness that would bring peace. When we hear Isaiah's prophecy about the Prince of Peace quoted at Christmas time, we tend to miss the middle verses, the part about the yoke of burden and the rod of the oppressor. But friends, these are crucial to really understanding the nature of this promised king and how he plans to establish his kingdom of peace. In verse four, Isaiah writes, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, clock that. We're going to come back to that. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In these verses, Isaiah points forward to a kingdom more powerful than the one that's oppressing them. And with that kingdom, he said, comes a promise. What's the promise? It's a promise of victory over tyranny. Victory over tyranny, but it's not the normal kind of victory. A lot of kings can bring about victory, and how do they do it? Through violence. Through violence, but, th- but this isn't that kind of victory. You see, in the same way that we're familiar with the battle stories of Gettysburg or Dunkirk or D-Day, so Isaiah's hearers, they knew the story of the old battles of their day. And so Isaiah, he's pointing, he's pointing to a famous victory of this battle of the Midianites. And he's pointing to that battle because it really wasn't a battle at all. But see, we miss this because we don't know what this battle is. Let me explain it just really quickly. You can read more about this battle in the book of Judges if you wanna find out more. But basically, Gideon and his men are surrounded. They're surrounded. 
And the Midianites, they're, this, they're, they're the representation of, of tyranny in its worst form. They are evil, evil people. And so Gideon and his men, they are terrified. They surround the Midian's camp at night. And what do they do? It's so fascinating. They blow their trumpets. They wave their torches. And the Midianites, in all their tyranny, they flee in panic. And that's how the battle is won. There's no bloodshed that's displayed in this battle. The war was won and justice was reestablished without violence. And Isaiah doesn't want us to miss this. Why is he referencing this battle? He's referencing it to help us see that the inbreaking kingdom of the Prince of Peace would shatter the yoke that burdens their shoulders, not through violence, but through self-giving sacrifice. Way of the dragon, violence. Way of the lamb, self-giving sacrifice. And it's after this promise of victory over tyranny that he points to the one who would accomplish that victory. The famous line, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And, And notice this, and the government will be on his shoulders. Notice the shift in weight. Man, can you feel it? Isaiah's use of imagery in this prophecy is so intentional. He wants you to feel the shift in weight that's happening in the text. When these corrupt kings are on the throne, the people, they bear the weight of a heavy yoke of of oppression on their shoulders. But when this child is born, the government will be on his shoulders. You feel it? The yoke of oppression that the people are carrying as a result of evil kings now shifts when this prince of peace comes on the scene. He'll carry the weight. Isaiah is saying that when this prince of peace comes, when he rules and he reigns as king, he will take on the burden of all of the world's sin and brokenness and the peace that the world is pining for. In that moment, it will finally come to pass. The promise of peace that Isaiah points us to, it's not an abstract idea, and it is so much more than a feeling. It's an embodied person. It's an embodied person, a king, a king who Isaiah says will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. His kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. Kingdoms rise and fall, all but this one, Isaiah is saying. The king will reign and his reign will free God's people from violent, oppressive empires, deliver them out of exile and bring about justice for the poor and the oppressed. Who will that king be? That is the question that's left hanging in the balance, looming in the hearts and minds of people as they wander around in exile and wait for God to break through 400 years of silence. Who will that king be? Matthew picks up right there. He answers that question by starting off his version of the Christmas story with the genealogy. 
You know, those long lists of names that flesh out a family tree that we tend to just skip right over, right? It's such a bunch of names that we don't know how to pronounce. So we're like, eh, doesn't seem that important, so we just skip right over it. But Matthew starts off his story of Advent with the genealogy on purpose. It seems kind of anticlimactic unless you remember Isaiah's prophecy. You see, Matthew 1, it starts like this, Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, he cuts straight to the point by starting with the genealogy. Matthew is trying to help his readers understand that the long-awaited king that Isaiah promised would come from the line of David, the one whose rule and reign would bring about that peace that they had been pining for, he has come. He's come, and by tracing Jesus's family line all the way back to David and Abraham, Matthew isn't just providing like biological proof of Jesus's existence. It's so much more than that. He's providing proof of God's plan to fulfill his promises both to David and Abraham through Jesus. Jesus is the one who will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. And in fulfilling God's promises to Abraham, that reign will extend beyond just the nation of Israel. In fulfilling his promises to Abraham through Jesus, he's making a way for all nations of the world to be blessed. Another way of saying that is that through Jesus, he will make a way for all people to enter into the peace of his rule and his reign. This is the moment they've been waiting for, right? Like cue the angel choir and the little drummer boys, like wherever they are, like now's the time for the song to be sung. This is the moment that they had been waiting for. But then pretty quickly, Matthew's account of the Advent story takes a sharp left turn as we're introduced to two people who respond quite differently to his arrival. With the last little bit of our time, I want us to just walk through these two groups of people and how they respond. And as we do, I wanna invite you to lean in. I wanna invite you to lean in and consider your own response to Jesus's arrival in this season. First group of people we meet are the Magi. Magi is the Greek word for magician, astrologer, or interpreter of dreams. These magi are often referred to, maybe in your version it says wise men. And they're called wise men because they're known for being the smartest, most educated people around. Like the wise men, the magi, were the people that were always in the royal court alongside kings and pharaohs because they were considered expert consultants. They were the ones who would tell you how to handle life. They were the ones that you wanted beside you, but nowhere in the whole Bible are these magi talked about in a positive light, okay? This is important for us to understand. Anyone who is a magician or an astrologer is spoken of in the Bible in a negative way, except for right here in Matthew's text. So when the original audience is reading Matthew's account and they see magi in the story, they would have been thinking to themselves, what in the world are they doing in the story? They don't belong here. What are these guys doing here? We're gonna come back and answer that question in just a bit. But despite their negative reputation, here they are. Some scholars estimate that they traveled some 900 miles looking for the baby Jesus a journey that would have no doubt cost them an immense amount of time and resources. 
They travel all this way, they pay all this cost looking for the baby that's been born who they call the king of the Jews. And this brings us to the second person in the story, King Herod. When King Herod hears that these wise men have come looking for the king of the Jews, the text says that he was disturbed. He was disturbed. You see, Rome was the new Babylon. And King Herod was the reigning tyrant of the time. He embodied the way of the dragon using violence to gain and maintain his position of power. And Herod had this gnarly reputation for his jealous rampages. Like every once in a while something would happen and he'd just get lit up. And beware of finding yourself in his path of raging jealousy. When that jealousy came over him, the Magi are in danger. And you can only imagine the jealousy that came over when the Magi come onto the scene and they're calling this baby the king of the Jews. Herod was a guy that was known for his jealousy and that jealousy ended him in murdering his wife and his sons. That's how bad this dude is, okay? That's how bad this dude is. And so when these Magi come on the scene, Herod's threatened. In Herod's world, he was the king of the Jews. And so for these magi to show up and say otherwise was to threaten his throne. And so like the magi, Herod too is moved to respond. He's moved to find out exactly where this baby is too, but for a very different purpose. You see, the magi, they respond. They respond, they're looking for Jesus to worship him. But Herod, Herod is looking for Jesus to destroy him. Why? Because for Herod, the birth of Jesus poses a threat to his own kingdom and name that he was building for himself, that he was finding, fighting so hard to protect. And so he responds to Jesus's arrival by trying to manipulate and control this threat by doing everything in his power to protect himself, his own name, his own kingdom. N.T. Wright says this, at the heart of the Christmas story in Matthew's gospel is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he kills a whole village full of other babies in order to try to get rid of him. Whatever else you say about Jesus from, this, from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. Why? Because he upset their power games and he suffered the usual fate of people who do that. The arrival of this king and his kingdom is a threat to anyone seeking to build their own kingdom, to anyone seeking to secure their own name and status. You see, it was Herod's lust for his own plans and purposes and his fear of losing his power that blinded him from seeing God's plan of redemption. The Magi, on the other hand, they didn't just bow, which would have been customary for, for anyone coming to visit a king in that day and age. The text says they didn't just bow, they worshiped. What would lead these pagan wise men to worship? The only explanation is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, somehow these, their eyes were open to see in Jesus the thing that they had spent their whole lives chasing after. What were the wise men chasing after? What were they, were they seeking their whole life for? Wisdom. 
They were the smartest, most educated people. Their whole lives were spent pursuing wisdom. And this is why I think Matthew included the Magi in his gospel. These Magi bowing before the baby Jesus are a picture of the wisdom of the nations bowing before Jesus, the true wisdom of God the true wisdom of God. I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, we tend to respond more like Herod than we'd like to think. Blinded by our own ambition, we try to control and manipulate our circumstances. Obsessed with our own plans, our own purposes, our own progress in life, we tend to cling to whatever power we can get our hands on thinking that if we could just get that job, or that title, or that promotion, or that relationship, or that recognition, then, then we would have the peace and security that we're longing for. I know I'm tempted to respond like Herod. I can look back on just the last few days and see very specific moments where I, like Herod, get so frustrated that God is not doing what I think he should when I think he should, and so what do I do? I reach for power. I wanna control and manipulate my circumstances because it makes me feel like I'm in control, like I'm safe, like I'm secure, like my life has significance. This is why Jesus says though, that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Herod's response is a fool's errand In all his attempts to save his life, he just ends up losing it in the end. The peace that we're longing for, friends, I believe, this is what I want you to catch. So if you're taking notes and you write down one thing, just write this down and then reflect on it for the rest of the week. The peace that we are longing for is found in the posture of the Magi. The peace that we're longing for is found in the posture of the Magi. Hearts and bodies bowed down in worship of the one true King. Every single one of us is looking for something or someone. We're all looking for something or someone to satisfy us and give us that peace that will make us feel at ease and secure. But the thing is, Whatever it is that you're looking for, you will not find except in him. This is why C.S. Lewis rightly says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. The peace that we are longing for is a person and that person's name is Jesus. And friends, the way that we open up ourselves to receive his peace It happens when we recognize him as the king who conquered the power of sin, shame, and death on the cross. And when we respond to that recognition by bowing every piece and part of our lives in worship to him just like the Magi. How can we see what the wise men saw when they laid eyes on Jesus and bow down in worship? How can we do that, friends? Look at the cross. That's the invitation. Look at the cross. What I want us to see is that this peace that we're longing for, it has a whole lot more to do with who or what is seated on the throne. And it's Jesus. Jesus is seated on the throne, but it begs the question, who is seated on the throne of your life? 
Who is seated on the throne of your heart that is dictating the decisions of your everyday life? On the cross, Jesus carries and shatters the yoke of all of our sin and shame. It's like Isaiah's prophecy, the government will be on his shoulders. That picture is supposed to evoke in us the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, the weight of the world's sin and shame on his shoulders. He bears the weight of the sin and shame that we in and of ourselves could not carry that we could not carry. And as he's raised up on the cross, he's coronated as king with the crown of thorns. And in that moment, he destroys the way of the dragon by becoming the sacrificial lamb. And so he says to us, he says to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Notice the language Jesus uses. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, why? For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That peace that you might be pining for in this Advent season. I'm preaching to myself here in so many ways, the peace that I am pining for in this Advent season. It only comes when I recognize that he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords the Prince of Peace who bore the weight of my sin on his shoulders and makes a way for me to enter into the kingdom of peace here and now in part and one day in full as we wait with eager anticipation for his second advent. That carol that I mentioned at the beginning of our gathering that has that line that talks about long lay the world in sin and error pining. It culminates, it climaxes in this response. What is that response in the carol? Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. When you recognize that Christ is the Lord, that he is the one who breaks the chains of oppression that lifts all of our burdens, our only response is to fall on our knees. And friends, I believe that that posture, that posture, maybe for some, your body needs to get in that posture to tell your heart what's true. But I believe that that posture of falling on our knees can open us up to receive the peace that is on offer for you today through the person and work of Jesus. And so how will you respond? How will you respond? I think this morning it's an invitation to let go of control and come to Jesus to fall on your knees and to worship him? What would it look like this Advent season for you to resist the tendency to build your own name, to build up your own kingdom through power and control or manipulation or gossip or backhanded attempts to gain control? What would it look like to let that go and instead respond by embracing the posture of the Magi and worship him? I wonder what would happen to this church if we did that. And so I just wanna leave you with this. My favorite part of gathering together on Sundays is not necessarily the preaching of the word, even though I think it is powerful and important because his word is truth and it points us to the one who is truth. But the back part of our gathering, we create this space to not just hear about the one who is the king of peace, but to encounter the one who is the king of peace. I believe that that peace is on offer for us if we would bow our bodies and our hearts before him today. Would you stand as we prepare to respond? Thanks for listening. 
For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at jesuschurch.org.